everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirud Singh. Our guest today is Sigal Mendelkar. Sigal joined Ribbit Capital as a general partner in April 2020. Prior to Ribbit, she served as the Undersecretary of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. As Undersecretary, she supervised four main components of Treasury. She also previously served in a number of senior positions in the U.S. government, including as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division of the Justice Department, Counselor to Security of Homeland Security, and Counsel to the Deputy Attorney General. Seagull is also an advisor to Chainalysis, is on the board of the Financial Technology Association, serves on the advisory group to the Digital Dollar Project, and is member of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. In today's episode, we discuss her career in both the public and private sectors, Ribbit's investment in Chainalysis, cryptocurrencies and anti-money laundering, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Uh, hello, Sigal, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's an honor to have you here with me. How are you doing and where are you calling in from? Good. Uh, well, thanks for asking me to join and um, doing great dialing in from New York City. <laughs> great. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming back to the city in about a month. So I'm very excited to move back there. It's a great place. <laughs> yeah. Going on. Um, so- so let's uh, let's jump into it. And I, I know your career has spanned a number of different places, uh, companies, uh, both public and private sectors. Could you kind of provide an overview of that for our listeners and, and describe how you came to join Ribbit? Yeah, sure. So why don't I start more at the beginning than the end, and then we'll walk through. Uh, I'll start actually from Penn. So I went to Penn <laughs> Law School, graduated in 2000. So it's uh, great to be on a Penn podcast. And then I clerked a couple times for judges, and including during 9-11, I was clerking at the Supreme Court. And after that, with the craziness of 9-11, all I really wanted to do was to go fight the terrorists. So after I finished clerking, I went to the Justice Department, where to the criminal division of the Justice Department, where I worked almost exclusively on counterterrorism national security uh, I got to work on the 9-11 case against Zacharias Moussaoui, among, among many other things. From there, I went to the deputy attorney general's office, where I also worked on national security. And then I wanted to really wanted to be a line prosecutor. Um, so I was fortunate enough to go to the U.S. attorney's office in the Southern District of New York or Manhattan, uh, where I was a prosecutor go, uh, going after a wide variety of different kinds of crimes. And then in 2004, 2005, Michael Chertoff, who had been my boss at the Justice Department, um, was named to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. He asked me to come back down to be uh, one of his counselors. So I did that. I helped him manage the Department of Homeland Security. From there, I went back to the Justice Department as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, where I supervised about 120 people. Um, and a number of different prosecutorial sections. Then in 2009, I went, um, came back to New York, I went to a law firm called Proskauer, became a partner, and thought that that was my path for a while, um, for a long time. But in December of 2016, I got a call to see if I was interested to be the Undersecretary of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. Uh, and it was the kind of job that it was difficult to say no to going back to my national security route. So I went to the Treasury Department. I was also, I was undersecretary, and then I was also acting deputy secretary of the Treasury for a period of time until October 2019, 
I stepped down after two and a half very intense years. It felt more like 25 <laughs> and came back into the private sector, landed eventually at Ribbit Capital. That is an absolutely incredible career and incredible journey. And we'll dive into that a lot in a bit. But on a much lighter note, I'm curious if across from the Penn Law School, when you were there, uh, it was still White Dog Cafe and Baby Blues Barbecue as it is right now, because I love those two spots. White Dog Cafe was there. I don't remember Baby Blues Barbecue, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> no, no. Well, if and when you're back on campus, I would recommend it. That sounds, that sounds great. I'd love it. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some of the more some of the details here. So, particularly at your time as Undersecretary of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, I'm curious uh, what kinds of partnerships you saw with fintech companies at the time, and if you would describe generally um, the public domain being open to far- partnering with uh, fintech companies. Yeah. Well, let me maybe I can start by giving you a little mm-hmm. bit of an overview of what that job is. So, in that role. I oversaw OFAC or the U.S. sanctions system, FinCEN, the U.S. anti-money laundering system, an intelligence agency and a policy shop that did a tremendous amount of work all over the world. So I had very broad regulatory authority over financial institutions, the financial sector, but also with sanctions, it was even broader than that. In terms of partnerships with fintechs, I wouldn't say that there was a lot of that. Actually, one of the reasons, and we can go go into this in more detail, why I decided to get into this space. One of, but one of the things that I observed when I was at Treasury uh, was that when fintechs and crypto came in to meet with senior officials in the government. Um, the two are often talking past each other. They're just, you know, you have these amazing founders who are incredible, you know, minds, engineers, entrepreneurs, but they didn't necessarily have as much of a grounding in like the public policy world, despite the fact that there's so much to offer from this sector to that world. So, so I had some interaction not a lot. I wouldn't say there are a lot of partnerships. That's changing actually with some of our companies, which is terrific. But part of what I wanted to, I saw incredible opportunity and growth um, in fintech and crypto. And part of what I wanted to do when I came to Ribbit was to help bridge a lot of those, a lot of those gaps. Mm-hmm. So, so what types of projects were top of mind for the Department of Treasury either at that time or right now? And where do you see opportunities for that gap to be bridged? Yeah. So. Honestly, some of what was top of mind for me was, you know, how do we keep North Korea from getting a further de- developing their WMD system and um, Iran from engaging in terrorism and Russia, et cetera. But as it was, as it pertained to this sector, crypto was definitely top of mind. It's even more so today. But when I when I came into into Treasury, it wasn't crypto wasn't nearly as big as it is now. FinCEN, which was one of my agencies, had long been a leader in regulating cryptocurrencies since 2013 or 2014 in a really productive way, actually. The the goal of FinCEN is in part to keep bad actors from abusing whatever the financial infrastructure is, financial institutions. And, um, And so we wanted to make sure that bad actors weren't using crypto to do bad things. And so um, we had regulated it for some time. But it quickly became apparent to me that crypto, we were one of the very few countries in the world that was doing that. It was, it was basically us, Australia and Japan. 
And in countries that don't have the same kind of regulation that we do, bad actors, we're going to go to those countries to try to potentially abuse the technology. And we, we didn't want that to happen, right? We wanted the technology to grow and exciting new innovative ways that we're seeing today while making it getting the bad guys, so to speak, to understand that it's they try to abuse it, there'll be consequences. So I did a lot of work along those lines, getting other, you know, working very closely with a number of other countries to have them regulate crypto very much in the same way that we were. And then we also did a lot to provide a lot of guidance to the sector on what the rules were, what they weren't, whether or not, to what extent our laws applied to the sector, whether it was in, with FinCEN or with, with OFAC, which was, you know, the U.S. sanctions program. So that all of those things were very much top of mind for me. Yeah, top of mind then and, and no doubt top of mind even uh, right now with what's going on uh, in Ukraine. Exactly. Uh, I'm curious, FinCEN obviously places a significant emphasis on preventing money laundering. I'm curious what kinds of uh, AML reforms uh, you were part of, either in the crypto space or just generally uh, with the Treasury. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I, the other thing that, that when I came in, it also became very apparent to me very quickly that the incentives for financial institutions to innovate with respect to anti-money laundering where they should be. And the balance of how they were spending their money was was off. I, that became apparent to me because they would come in and talk to me about it extensively. Um, and in particular, they gave me this data point. There was one person who I really trusted and respected who gave me the de- this data point where she said, um, Sigal, we at this particular bank, we spend the vast, vast majority of our time when we're doing AML proving a negative or proving on false positives where we have to justify to regulators, hey, like we know we had an alert for something, but it turned out that there was no issue here and we have to, and we're spending all of our time documenting it. And that's not how I wanted financial institutions, crypto, banks, or otherwise to spend their time, right? I wanted them to be able to have the leeway to build out really sophisticated anti-money laundering programs that enabled them much in a much more efficient, much quicker way to go after that activity, the North Korea bad actors, and to spend less time just satisfying obligations that actually didn't make didn't make sense. So I set out to really do a lot of work to reform that system, working with uh, my partners the, in the interagency, the vice chair of the Fed for supervision, the, the chair of the FDIC, the comptroller of the currency, the head of the OCC, and the head of the NCUA. And we just set off on this pathway to really rejigger how banks were regulated. We provided a lot more guidance to financial institutions about what their obligations were and what they weren't, right, among many other things. And one of the pieces of guidance that we issued um, was also really intended to give financial institutions a lot more leeway than they had ever had before to innovate, uh, which was, you know, I think really, really important for many different reasons. As a consultant, I uh, was working for a bank and helping them kind of restructure their uh, uh, regulatory like organization structure. Uh, And there were certainly some 
a little bit of anger, honestly, at the time of like how how difficult it was for them to kind of prove that they were doing the right thing. Um, yes. So it's nice to hear uh, that that you were working on kind of streamlining that process a little bit. Yeah, that's it. that's it exactly. Yeah. I, you know, we didn't finish the job. There's a lot more work to yeah. <laughs> to be done, um, but I think we set it off on a very good path. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, it's 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 important work. Um, so I understand why those uh, regulations are in place, but opportunity for improvement, of course. A lot. Yeah. Going back to the crypto topic a little bit, this next question might frustrate you because uh, you've probably heard this and had to answer it a few times. And it might seem like you know this should not be a concern anymore. But I was recently talking to a lawyer friend of mine, very intelligent. I go to him for a lot of trust things, but he mentioned that he still feels like crypto is predominantly used by people who don't want to be tracked. Uh, and I had a Tough time dispelling that notion for him. So I'm wondering if you could uh, kind of help me out with that. Look, I mean, I, I don't know what the intent. I can't tell you that it's people who don't want to be tracked. But if you are using crypto, right, it turns out that it is in many, many respects much more transparent than what we have in banking. Because for the most part, with some limited exceptions, you know, everything in the blockchain is tra- transparent. It's immutable. So that if I, you know, if I send Bitcoin to you, there's a record of it. Everybody can see the record. They may not know that it comes from me and that it's going directly to you, um, but they can see the pathway. And if um, if you're tied to a regulated exchange and law enforcement needs to figure it out, actually, they can do that with a lot of ease. So if you talk to prosecutors, law enforcement agents, and you gave them the choice in their criminal cases of going after money laundering that happened through either cash or shell companies at multiple banks versus money laundering that happened in crypto, universally, they will say, yes, please give me the crypto cases <laughs> because they are. it's much, much easier to track in, in many respects, which is also why one of the companies that we've invested in and that I'm an advisor to is called Chainalysis. And they're the blockchain analytic firm. It's also why they, they and every year they come out with a report about illicit activity in crypto. This last year, the report, and, and these numbers may change a little bit, but it said that it's about 1.5%. I mean, point, not 1.5, 0. 0.15%, right? And that's because, look, there's a lot of exciting, innovative stuff that's happening in crypto for all kinds of, you know, innovative, very, very lawful reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And then, bad actors are starting to understand, hey, wait a minute, if I use crypto to try to do bad things, I have a higher chance of getting caught. So they're they're going to end up just going to other means. So the illicit part has a lot of that is being driven out. So, so you mentioned chain analysis, and um, it might be a good time now to transition to your work with Ribbit. Um, so you've been at Ribbit for, I think, about two years now. How did you initially decide to make, make that transition from uh, public sector to private yeah. sector? So when I left the Treasury Department, I gave, you can't actually look for a job in that job. It's almost impossible. So I gave myself a six-month time period. And I had gotten really interested in fintech and crypto in large part because when I was at Treasury and I was traveling all over the world, meeting with heads of state and central bank governors, finance ministers, and all kinds of other senior officials in various um, countries, and also with CEOs of banks, particularly in the developing world and in emerging markets, it became increasingly clear to me 
that our banks had massively de-risked from those countries. So you look at the continent of Africa, you now look at huge swaths of the Western hemisphere, Latin America, the Middle East, et cetera. Our banks are really um, in droves getting out of those sectors, of those regions. And for many reasons, I think that's you know bad for our for our country. It's bad for democracy, the rule of law. It's bad from a geopolitical perspective. You know, if you think about the tools that I, the sanctions tools that I had, they're going to be far, far less effective in countries where there's no nexus to the U.S. financial system. And I just came to the conclusion that um, the only way to change that dynamic was through disruptive financial technologies, right? Where you, whether it's fintech or crypto, uh, where you have people and amazing engineers who are really, really focused on building out dynamic new systems and don't have the disincentives that a lot of banks have today to operate in many different parts of the of the world. Uh, so I set out to find a place, you know, sort of where I could. Uh, I had this passion for this area, and I set out to find the place, you know, where I could uh, work on it in a way that I would love to. Along the way, I met our founder, Mickey Malka, who's an uh, an amazing investor and entrepreneur. When I first met him, we weren't even talking about a job. I was just kind of getting his advice. We hit it off very quickly. And he has, he and others at Ribbit, like Nick Shalik, who was on your program, just have this amazing vision for what the future of finance can look like. And it was definitely quite infectious. (laughs) And so within a week or so, Mickey called me and he said, hey, you know, I have an idea for you. Uh, And then we started uh, talking about me coming uh, to Ribbit. And it's been, uh, you know, just an amazing opportunity to take all my sort of skills and experience from the past and bring it into a fundamentally new uh, sector. Plus, it's just, it's great to switch things up and do something different. Yeah, for sure. Uh, are you particularly focused on like reg tech and reg tech in uh, developing nations or are you uh, a little bit more broad than that? No, it's, it's more broad. So Ribbit mm-hmm. in particular, you know, we're, we are exclusively in fintech and in crypto. I meant uh, you specifically. Yeah, me specifically. No, I mean, I work with, a, with our companies across a, a broad spectrum. So it's not at all just reg tech, although we have invested in reg tech companies like Chainalysis, which is really fun and exciting because I get to still exercise, you know, that I get to geek out on, on those kinds of things. But I work sort of across the spectrum of, of companies that we uh, invest in. And can we talk a little bit more about your investment in Chainalysis? I, I believe uh, you're... Are you, are you on their board? I'm an advisor to them. We, we've okay. invested and I'm an advisor. Yeah. Got it. So you're an advisor. And can you talk a little bit about uh, how you built conviction for this particular investment? Yeah. So we we invested in Chainalysis just around the time that I had started. In fact, we were doing due diligence, You know, going through that process after I... I think after I'd accepted, but before I was officially... On board, I hadn't really interacted with Chainalysis, but I had heard of them for some time. Actually, the first time I heard of them was in December of 2017 at our Treasury holiday party, and there was someone from one of our components who told me he was going to Chainalysis, and I was like, "You're going to what? You're going to crypto?" <laughs> and a few years later, then uh, look at me. But Chainalysis, I we had gone after a particular set of bad actors, and including bad actors that had used crypto. And within a literally a day of our action, Chainalysis had produced this unbelievable report where they showed all of the different 
networks or connections that this particular wallet address that we had sanctioned were, were connected to. And I remember thinking, actually, my senior advisor, who's now at Coinbase, so lots of people going into this sector, uh, brought me this report. And I remember looking at it and thinking, oh my God, this is what we want everybody to do. So, and it's actually what I was talking about before. It's the value of um, when it comes to illicit finance, you know, one of the values of this technology is that you can build out, you can see all of those connections and chains down the road. So I remember knowing about them at the time. And then fast forward, when I, uh, before I even, again, joined Ribbit, we had started to talk about them and they, they were really, you know, best in class and what they were, they were very, very early to the game and best in class. And there are a lot of uh, terrific people, including their founders, who we started to get to know. I had met one of them a few months before, but others um, at Ribbit had, hadn't been getting to know them too. And we saw this as a growth opportunity at a particular time where regulation in this space was catching on. As I, as I had said before, you know, when I started, there were three countries in the world who regulated crypto in the way that we did. And that dynamic was changing pretty significantly. So there was a lot, a lot, we thought that there would, there was a lot of opportunity there, both in the public and private sector. And they have, they do work with both sides. Um, so I was on uh, Chainalysis's Twitter account recently and saw a number of reports about uh, crypto flows uh, with between not twin uh, crypto flows with Russia and Ukraine, uh, and seen that they've done quite a bit of research on that. Um, can you share any of those findings? Yeah, well, the amazing thing about Ukraine in particular, actually, is that soon after the war broke out, there was a call for donations from the crypto community. And there's a particular exchange in Ukraine that worked very closely with the Ukrainian government to set up that infrastructure for people from crypto who wanted to contribute to the war effort, whether for humanitarian purposes, military purposes, and the like. So they coordinated very closely. They set up a reliable address. And within a few weeks, they've raised over $70 million. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, in fact, the head of that exchange testified a week and a half ago alongside Jonathan Levin from his name, the head of the exchange, his name is Michael Chabanian. Michael testified with uh, Jonathan Levin, who's the co-founder of Chainalysis, and Michael Mosier, who was in a treasury with me and is also now in crypto. And they talked about what this had, this technology had enabled very, very quickly, which is without having to go through various, you know, wire transfers, which can be can be um, take a lot of time and be very expensive. They were very quickly again able to set up the system where contributions could be made, and then similarly very quickly used, you know, Bitcoin, ETH, whatever it was, used to buy equipment and. Mm -hmm food and supplies by the Ukrainian government. The amazing thing about, about it, if you think about that from an illicit finance perspective, is because it's crypto, it's transparent, right? So if it if some of that ended up in the wrong hands, you would be able to see it. You would be able to see where it went and then, you know, take action against, yeah. against it. So um, I've thought this for a long time that crypto is could be an amazing enabler for humanitarian aid. It was used also in Venezuela a couple of years ago, where it was very difficult to get humanitarian aid into the country. 
And then the State Department worked with USDC, with Stablecoin, mm-hmm. with Circle, and I think RTM to get mm-hmm. a ton of value into the hands of doctors and nurses who are on the front lines of COVID. So, but this was really, a, this so far has really been at scale. In many respects, it feels like a watershed moment, right? Where mm-hmm. people are seeing and governments are seeing what this technology can enable in a mm-hmm. wartime crisis. On the Russia side, I mean, so far, the conclusion of Chainalysis and others, including myself, is that there were a lot of headlines suggesting that it was going to be used at scale for Mm -hmm. sanctions evasion for a number of reasons. We think that's unlikely. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that also came out at the Senate banking testimony. It's not that, you know, it won't be used for sanctions evasion. Lots and lots of different things will, will be. I don't know that we've seen it so far. Yeah. But for wide-scale sanctions evasion, it's actually just not going to yeah. make sense. There are liquidity problems. It's very easy to track. Plus, it turns out the Russians are very good at money laundering. <laughs> so, you know, not the Russians, I should say. There are certain people who have been um, historically very good at, at money laundering. And so there, there are lots of other ways that they can try to move money. At the same time, we have to consider, and this is what Michael Chabanian said at, at the hearing, we have to consider how it could be used to help people who are trying to get out of Russia as a mechanisms of, of freedom and survival. So mm-hmm. you want to be um, careful how you talk about it. Yeah. I, I think it's also important to note that within Ukraine, there was a certain level of crypto knowledge and adoption of crypto that, yes. that made it a little bit easier for them to use this as a means for cross-border um, aid uh, and in some ways be faster than traditional aid. Yeah, I think that's in part because we've just had incredible software developers and engineers come out of Ukraine. Anybody in this space would tell you that some of the best founders in fintech and crypto are are from Ukraine. So there's just a lot. There's a, an amazing amount of talent in the, from the country. So you've got that. You know, you've got that piece going for you as yeah. well. Unfortunately, um, a lot of those folks have had to you know, pick up arms or yep. uh, been displaced. So, yeah, I was uh, just blown away by the number of founders that I knew that had either their CTO or a significant portion of their tech talent uh, in yes. Ukraine. Um, I did not realize that uh, beforehand. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people, have, I think, also have talked to their teams in Ukraine and offered to help them, you know, get out. And a lot of them have said, no, we're here to, mm-hmm. you know, to stay and fight for our fight for our country. I mean, it's what the Ukrainian people have. My family is originally from a part of Mm -hmm. uh, Ukraine that was Poland when they were born. My parents were born, but what the Ukrainian people have done um, to fight for their country, you know, this like civilian army is really such an incredible testament to what people will do for freedom. So, yeah. And great to get your perspective on it as well, given, given your background. Zooming out a little bit, I'm sure there are some investment theses that Ribbit has or that you have personally that you're excited to see play out over the next three to five years, areas that you think will uh, grow significantly or, or, or warrant more attention. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, we're, you know, Ribbit, we're really bullish on this sector on, you know, obviously fintech and crypto, but we see a lot of different companies that are, oh, and engineers uh, and entrepreneurs who are who are really building out what we think could be the like the rails of the future in this disintermediated world. So we're following we're following that very very closely. We've um, we've also made a number of investments in the infrastructure that can enable the sector to grow in in a way that will um, be 
but like similar companies to Chainalysis or where they will enable it to grow in a, in a way that will make consumers and regulators increasingly comfortable with it, whether it's... Um, we recently invested in a company called TaxFit, for example, that's helping to enable people to pay taxes and the IRS to receive taxes in crypto, which can be historically has been just, it's just a complicated system. Um, we're in, in, investors in a company uh, called Gauntlet that that has really sophisticated ways of looking at risk. We're super bullish on where the insurance sector will um, has the ability to go. Um, we've got a cybersecurity uh, company that's really focused on, on crypto and cybersecurity. Another one that's top in the class on um, uh, issues around subcustody and again security and KYC and AML. We recently invested in a company that I think could enable programmable compliance in a really unique and privacy protected protective way with some of the best engineers in the world in that space. So. There's a lot to look forward. Yeah, forward a lot to. to be excited about. And yeah. then B two B, we've got a big B two B thesis among among other mm-hmm. things. Yeah, um, Siegel. The, the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid fire questions to help the uh, audience get to know you a little bit better. All right. Hoping for answers in about ten seconds or less. Okay, right, I will try my best. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite book? Well, I'll tell you a book I read recently that I think is really sure. amazing. I don't know if it's my favorite, but the Bitcoin standard that traces the um, history of money and value and um, really provides this amazing thesis about you know why Bitcoin, what the value of, of a Bitcoin really is and in leading into the future. Yeah, it's been on my list. I should uh, get on that. Do you remember your first introduction to cryptocurrencies? Yes, sort of. I in before we before Bitcoin, um, we I supervised a case against when I was in the Justice Department against a company called eGold that was sort of the predecessor to this space. And it turned out that eGold was used for a lot of bad things, a lot of bad purposes. So we uh, we prosecuted we prosecuted that case. And then mm-hmm. the, you know it's the ecosystem has evolved in far better ways mm-hmm. <laughs> since then. Yeah. Uh, what is your proudest accomplishment? My proudest accomplishment. Well, I'll, I did a lot of work when I was both at the Justice Department and um, at Treasury to build out human rights related mm-hmm. uh, programs. So mm-hmm. I supervised when I was at the Justice Department the first uh, case involving torture uh, against the son of Charles Taylor, who was uh, the terrible former head of Liberia. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and we did a lot of other things. Um, we went after. Nazis and many others. And then when I came to Treasury, similarly, we built out this really in, incredible human rights uh, program. That, yeah. That's an incredible answer. Thank you. What is your <laughs> much lighter note? What is the favorite vacation that you've ever been on? So I'm a kayaker and I love to go on camping, kayaking trips in the middle of nowhere. So my favorite one of those trips was in 2002, I think I, it was my first of the trips where I went kayaking, camping for two weeks in Alaska, dodging icebergs and going and, and going to glaciers and stuff. Yeah. This is certainly not in the middle of nowhere, not anywhere near a, an iceberg, but have you been kayaking on the East River? I believe they, they have like free kayaks to just hop out there um, if you want to. I've been kayaking on the Hudson. Yeah. The Hudson. Yeah, that's right. Really amazing. Yeah. And you can yeah. go to the New Jersey side and then go back mm-hmm. at night and you see all of Manhattan. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, great. great. 
Um, last question for you today, and you can take a little bit longer on this if you'd like. What does success look like for you and for Rivet? Success is that we help change the world of finance <laughs> to make it much more accessible to many more people all, all over the world. I mean, that's kind of what our, that's our uh, mission set, right? Is uh, we, we have a lot of people at Rivet from a number of different uh, backgrounds that kind of influence, I think, the ethos that we have, which is at the end of the day, um, we want to um, we want a much more accessible financial ecosystem than what we have today. And I think long before I was there, we set off on that journey and have been uh, really successful at at helping to build that out in ways that are really extraordinary. So um, success is you know is just continuing to be you know help to lead that wave well into the future. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up for today. But thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been an absolute honor to hear about your journey and your work in the public and private sector and some of your thoughts on the Ukraine crisis. Uh, And I really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. And again, amazing to do it with Penn. (laughs) So great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.